So I think that the impact begins in childhood. Maybe we are, I mean, the research data shows that boys are touched less, soothed less in their negative emotions, whether that's physically or verbally. Even if our parents have are consciously feminist and trying to move towards equality, sometimes unconscious bias creeps in. And not being soothed as children means that we receive less training in how to soothe our own emotions. Compound that with the violence that boys and men often experience when they deviate from expected norms of masculinity, whether that's being teased or beaten up on the playground or being told to man up when we cry at the end of a Little League baseball game. Or just later on, you know, being encountering the fears of homosexuality. Welcome to Vaginas, Vulvas, and Vibrators with Jordan Donnell. This is a safe place to learn about women's health and sexual wellness. I'm your host, Jordan Donnell, physician assistant, women's sexual health educator, and intimacy coach. Right, you guys, welcome back to the Vaginas, Vulvas, and Vibrators podcast. Today we have Eric Fitzmedrude joining us to talk all about enthusiastic consent and men's emotions. And this is a topic we have not highlighted on the podcast a lot. You know, I rarely have men join me on the podcast because this is a platform where we really vocalize women's voices. But I recently read your book, The Better Man. A Guide to Consent, Stronger Relationships, and Hotter Sex. And I thought that it was a really phenomenal book in a lot of conversation points that we need to talk about in the world of relationships because women are also affected by men. And I think that's the aspect that we're commonly forgetting about is that we have to also be aware of how they're impacted and how to support men in our heteronormative relationships, if that is, you know, the relationship type that you're looking at. So I'd love to kind of throw the floor over to you, let you do a brief introduction of yourself, and then we'll jump right in. Okay. Well, I'm a therapist in private practice. I primarily focus on working with sex and relationship issues. And my practice is centered in the San Francisco Bay Area and, you know, post-COVID broadly across California. So some of the things that you're going to hear me talk about as normal in my practice may not be as common in all parts of the country. And my hope is that if there are some elements that are kind of on the advanced edge of sex positivity, sexual openness, that they still inform people who are having other experiences. Mm, I love that. So Let's just start with what is enthusiastic consent and how does this differ from traditional consent? Yeah, I sometimes talk about it as the low bar consent versus high bar consent. Low bar consent is about preventing sexual assault and worse. It's about making sure that nobody leaves feeling terrible. And enthusiastic consent is about orienting to everybody feeling awesome. Enthusiastic consent is when you go from yes, okay, I guess so, to fuck yeah. Like, that sounds great. Let's do that. And it shifts the dynamic entirely from the petitioner trying to get consent from the other person to searching for what is going to make everybody feel awesome about what we're about to do. 
so that it's not just about getting consent for a specific behavior, but looking for what's going to make us both feel awesome before, during, and after the process. I love that definition. And I think that it's so important to talk about enthusiastic consent. I've had conversations with friends of mine and consent is such a touchy topic. It's like, how do we get consent where it's sexy and it's not implied consent? Because I think that's a lot of times what traditional consent is. It's not, may I fuck you? It is very like, well, she didn't say no. And so I talk about this on my platform sometimes is to me very much saying if it's not a fuck yes, it is a no. And until it is a fuck yes, it is a no. And so really tuning into your body and listening to that, what are some ways to determine like if you know it's an enthusiastic yes? The first one is that you see it in your partner's body, right? They lean forward, their eyebrows go up, they turn towards you, they're smiling, they are holding, even when they're not speaking, this energized presence in their body, and it is directed at you about what you're offering, about what you're asking for. And that's also how you can orient to enthusiastic consent in yourself, right? That's how you feel. You feel alive. You feel curious. You feel interested in what's going to happen. How will this feel? What is it going to be like? Is the promise of this offer going to feel as good as I think it's going to feel? And I am ready and engaged and interested. I'm brought into this present moment. A lot of the things that go along with flow are going to be brought up in enthusiastic consent, a sense of absorption, a loss of self-consciousness, a sense of time passing without awareness. I love all of those body cues that you pointed out because I think that sometimes don't pay attention to those. And body language is so important. And sometimes you may not hear a no or a yes, but their body language can give you a lot of that information. And then that gives you an opportunity to maybe ask questions. You know, is this a yes for you? Is this a no for you? And dig a little bit deeper. I also think that there's an element when, if we are turning to body language to help us interpret our partner's yes and presence, especially if it's a new partner, a hookup or something like that, especially at the beginning, get curious about that. You know, like, okay, you're making out, you know, maybe some clothes are starting to open up or come off, fasteners are being released. Now pause for a quick second. Hey, I just want to check in. This is what I'm seeing in you. This is what I'm observing on your facial expression. This is what I'm observing in your body language. And this is what I'm hearing in your tone of voice, your mm, your ah, your yes, whatever. And I just want to make sure that's all green lights, right? You know, maybe even just checking in. What would happen in your body if there was a yellow light? What would happen in your body if there was a red light? And we can so easily misinterpret things, right? Some people have like an orgasm cave that they go into. They close their eyes, they go internal, they stop speaking. And that's how they focus enough on their own sensual experience in order to find their orgasm and their pleasure. And that could look on the outside like you've checked out, you're not with me anymore, where'd you go? But we can find out by using a few words in the middle of the moment, like, hey, what's going on? Where are you going? Like, what does that mean? How am I going to know when you're really getting your greatest pleasure? How would I know if you weren't? And we can directly be given the map to interpret those bodily cues. And now we can follow along. Like, okay, they said 
that when, you know, their toes curl, that means everything's good. Toes are curling, you know, or started curling there for a moment. Maybe I need to go back and do more of that. Or leaning into the pleasure levers that our partner's giving us by teaching us how to interpret them. Mm. I feel like consent so often lies in the man's hands and that it is often like their quote job to Mm. obtain consent. And there's Mm -hmm. so much pressure on men to be leading this conversation. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I want to identify too, the flip side of what you've just identified is that it's the man's job to lead the consent conversation, but then it's in a heterosexual relationship, it's the woman's job to give or withhold consent. And I love upending that entirely. Men, you know, consent is for you. It's to protect your heart, your STI concerns, your fears of unwanted pregnancy, your fears about your reputation so that you can deliver the love in your heart and the desire in your pants to a partner who really wants it. And if men are oriented not just to trying to get consent, but also to using their own consent, yeses, maybes, and nos to protect themselves, then this becomes an egalitarian conversation. Now, women can also take care of and tend their male partner's heart and their male partner's concerns. We also have fears of sharing our deepest fantasies of what happens if our erection isn't present, even though we feel desire, if our ejaculation comes quote-unquote too soon or quote-unquote too late. And so there's an intense vulnerability and consent can allow us to defend and support and protect and nurture each other in that process. How do you lead a consent conversation or what are some of the key components that you would recommend we include? So I want to try to separate out different phases of the consent conversation because a consent conversation doesn't take place and then the behavior uh, begins and the consent conversation is over. So I like to talk about three phases of the consent process, negotiation, monitoring, and follow-up or feedback. And so how you begin it at the negotiation phase is by saying something like, hey, let's talk about what's about to happen here. What are you interested in? Can I share with you what I'm interested in? Can I share with you the things that do work for me or don't work for me? And in my book, at that negotiation phase, I lay out three basic questions. How do we each want to feel and not want to feel during and after this experience? What are we each going to do in order to create those feelings? And number three, what are we each not going to do in order to create those feelings? And I think that orienting to the feelings, in my experience working with couples, helps shift from the behavior, like, well, we're going to have sex in this position, to what are the feelings we're trying to create? You know, does your partner want to feel dirty and nasty and free to fuck like crazy? Or does your partner want to feel worship, you know, like a god or goddess who is adored and sacred in your eyes? You know, we might have sex in any position. But how we do that, how we touch, how we feel and look and interact with each other in that exact same position could create those two very different feeling landscapes. So it's really the feeling we're trying to cultivate and orienting to that I think is so important. I feel like so often in sex, it is hard to get to the root of what is it that you are wanting. 
Do you have like some guidelines for people to figure that out so that they can lead these conversations with more confidence? I mean, the way that I would uh, talk about it is you basically have two options. So either everything that's true inside of you can remain hidden and become a barrier to your pleasure and your partner's capacity to give and receive pleasure from, or you can name it and open up that possibility. It doesn't mean that you will be able inherently to find and enact that possibility, but that's what creates that possibility. So the risks are high and never present, and the promise only opens up through authenticity. Mm, Authenticity is so important. And this comes up in many conversations that I have outside of sex, you know, in our businesses, especially in the place of business. But authenticity is so important. Yeah. Again, it's the only option. And if you're feeling for whatever reason, like this partner is not safe to be authentic with, has not received that, has not demonstrated themselves to be trustworthy to you, trust that. That's authentic too. And if you find that you consistently have difficulty opening up and it doesn't matter what the partner is doing, that may be some of your growth work to do. And it can also be some insight to that relationship. And, Absolutely. You know, is, if you're not feeling safe, is this the right place to be? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, how are men also impacted by the patriarchy? I would love to hear your thoughts on that because, like we said, men are very much impacted by a lot of these things that we, as women, generally may not think about. So I'd love to get some insight on your thoughts. So I think that the impact begins in childhood. Maybe we are, I mean, the research data shows that boys are touched less, soothed less in their negative emotions, whether that's physically or verbally. Even if our parents have, are consciously feminist and trying to move towards equality, sometimes unconscious bias creeps in. And not being soothed as children means that we receive less training in how to soothe our own emotions. Compound that with the violence that boys and men often experience when they deviate from expected norms of masculinity, whether that's being teased or beaten up on the playground or being told to man up when we cry at the end of a Little League baseball game. Or just later on, you know, being encountering the fears of homosexuality because homosexuality would mean we were the target of emasculation, ostracizing, or harm from our peers. Our experience as men is often one that we are trying to protect ourselves from these kinds of verbal, social, and physical violence. And it causes us to close off our vulnerability not just from our friends, not just from our partners, but even from ourselves. Because if we aren't aware of our vulnerability, then there's no way to enact it. And that puts us, I think, at a serious disadvantage by the time we start partnering sexually and relationally with others, whatever our orientation or partner's gender might be, because it puts us in this position where the very thing that relationship and sexuality requires, vulnerability, is an unfamiliar skill to us. We don't know how to speak. We don't know how to tolerate and listen to and empathetically hold our partner's warmth and vulnerability and pleasure. 
and we receive feedback that's necessary as critique because we're so vigilant to anything that might be putting us down. And so it's our work that we need to do to shed some of these layers of trauma and to come into our humanity with our partners. But it's difficult. Yeah. And how, as women, can we help men feel more safe to be vulnerable? So the very first thing I like to say when that question gets asked is, first, let's make sure that you're taking care of yourself. Let's make sure that you actually are safe in this situation, that you are actually protected, that you are actually in charge of your bodily autonomy. Because if that's not the case, then we don't shift to teaching women how to take care of men. (laughs) First, your safety. And then inside of that safety, if you have it, and if you feel abundant and generous and kind towards your partner, then I open up my answer to that question, which is, One of the biggest things that you can do is allow for silence because as men learn to articulate their feelings in a relationship, we have to go through all of those layers of trauma. We have to go through knowing and naming our feeling in our body, moving into finding the right words, trying to go through our own fears that we're going to say the wrong thing and lose our partner, and then finally begin speaking in little pieces that we test out and that we drop delicately to see if we're still being listened to. Silence allows that to continue percolating up from our guts into our mouths and out of our mouths. And then as we continue to receive silence, we know that this is still a safe space to speak into. And the second thing is to be non-judgmental. Whether it is a man revealing his intimate, you know, sexual desires that you don't have to be interested in, you don't have to want to do that, But can you just accept that that's in his mind, that's in his erotic landscape, and he's been vulnerable enough to share it with you? That doesn't mean you have to say yes to it. But can you just allow that that's scary and difficult and be non-judgmental about it? He didn't choose to be turned on by that thing any more than you chose to be turned on by your things. But that's what it is, and he's entrusting you with that. And that goes equally well for his feelings, for his initially, hopefully, faltering communication style about what's happening in the relationship. It takes time to develop, and we need the space to not always get it right, but with encouragement and without judgment. So when we're in that situation where we're sharing to, for the partner to just be non-judgmental, about the vulnerability of that erotic sharing, that emotional sharing, or to be non-judgmental about he is learning with me right now how to communicate in vulnerability. He didn't say all those words right. He said some things that sound like blaming or not taking responsibility. But can I be gentle with that and supportive of that developmental process instead of being judgmental about it? Are you ready to start understanding yourself better, learning and recognizing your patterns, and really develop a relationship with yourself? If this sounds like you, the Unleashing My Power, a women's empowerment and gratitude journal is for you. This journal was specifically curated for women just like you to help you take back your power and develop and go to the next level in life. My friend Danielle and I created this journal because of our own experiences and what we were looking for 
in a daily practice to improve our connection to self and really become connected with ourselves. This is game-changing and the feedback that we are getting from other women who have started using this journal is absolutely amazing. You can find it on Amazon or you can go to jordandonnell.com slash journal and it'll take you right there. I hope you enjoy. Be sure to go snag yours right away and leave me a review. Tell us what you think about it. Slide in the DMs. I know that your life will change when you start using this journal. And I think that that's so important, just having that compassion for what is coming out. It's interesting as you shared the process and the silence that's needed for men. I so relate to that personally and that that is what I need to effectively communicate as well. So it's just very, very interesting, the alignment. And, you know, sometimes when we have these conversations, yes, we're talking maybe about men. Yes, we're maybe talking about women, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't relate to people of other genders. Yeah, we're always speaking in very broad brushes when we talk about gender and gendered experience. There are certainly men who are much more comfortable with their emotions and talking about them. There are men who are comfortable talking about sex and sexuality, including their own erotic desires. And for those men, their partners may not need to do as much of that work for them, or they may not benefit from that help from their partners as much. Yeah. Why is it important that women are aware of how these five wounds of patriarchy affect men? So as women push back with the support of feminism for accountability and for change in men, kind of natural human tendency to demonize can come up. And my hope is that by identifying the wounds of men in patriarchy, Women and people of other genders can realize that patriarchy is hurting all of us. Yes, there are certain benefits that accrue to some men, not all men equally. And also, it's hurting all of us. We're in this pain together. And to recognize that means that we need to heal each other in order to stop the challenges of those wounds, the risks of those wounds being passed back and forth between us and our relationships. And I think it's important to remember that like, we're all in this together Mm -hmm. and everything affects all of us. It might be differently, but we are all in it together. Mm -hmm. And maybe finding support in that commonality that their experience and my experience is different, but it still affects both of us. Yeah. And none of that lets anyone off of the hook for accountability for their behavior. Absolutely. You talk about destructive masculinity in your book. I would love for you to tell us kind of what that is and why it is so harmful. So a little bit of an allergy that a lot of men have to hearing about the phrase toxic masculinity And there are a number of terms that are common in men's work to try to move around that allergy. Paul Kivel and Mark Green talk about the man box. Ed Frauenheim and Ed Adams talk about constrained masculinity. All of those really talk about the two-dimensional nature of traditional masculinity and how no man can live up to those demands. 
But what it doesn't speak to in the same way is how, it, in my thinking, is the way that the pain of our wounds gets into our bones and then unconsciously, and even if we are feminists or we think of ourselves as good men or we don't want to be, it can end up coming out of us in ways that perpetuate that pain. So I talk about destructive masculinity as the ways that that the harmful masculine narratives end up hurting us and our partners. It comes out and hurts our partners in our defensiveness, in our difficulties listening to the pain that we cause, in our difficulties delivering our love and our desire to our partners, but also it hurts us. It's toxic to us. And that's clear in the ways that we uh, men experience this epidemic of loneliness and the fact that our suicide rates are four times higher than women and the fact that our addiction rates are high and we are poisoning ourselves with these ideas of masculinity. And unless we free ourselves from them, we won't be able to find the generative masculine connection. For example, our ability to end men's loneliness epidemic by connecting with and nurturing other men. That is so important. I'm glad that you brought that up because I am really finding a lot more men's groups and men who are looking for other men to support them on this, mm -hmm. you know, to maybe, quote, do life a little bit differently. Yeah. And women have done, a, I, I think, a really good job leading this. And we've got women's circles. We have a lot of women's communities. But the need for that is very much so there for men. And it's coming. And it's hard for us to find really nurturing forms of men's groups. Paul Kivel, he founded pro-feminist men's groups in the 70s forward in the Oakland area. And he talks about the importance of accountability for men's groups so that we don't just get together and kind of pass back and forth our own trauma narratives and radicalize ourselves, but that we are held accountable to our partners, our communities, other groups so that they can check. Is our work creating generative men in the world? Is the group and our work making men who are making this community better and stronger? And I think it's a really beautiful way of acknowledging that it's important that we stay tuned in to, yes, do our work, but what is the feedback that we're getting? Yes, I love that. And I'm going to have to share that resource with some men that I know that are running men's groups, because I think that that would be really helpful to look into his work and use that as a good guiding tool. Before I ask you the next question, I want to jump into our little fun segment called Kink of the Week real quick. I would yeah. love for you to share with us one of maybe the kinks that you see a lot in the practice or one of your own personal kinks, whatever you feel most comfortable sharing with the audience so that we can learn by learning what's available out there. Sure. So um, I'll speak about me. I don't like exposing clients' material publicly. So I'm a switch. So I can be dominant. I can be submissive. I'll say about myself to partners that I have a broad erotic repertoire. And inside of that, I was like, what kink would I want to highlight for the kink of the week? And what I was thinking is actually, no matter what side of the kink dynamic I'm on, adoration is the thing that is my kink. I love to be adored by my sub. I love to be adored by a top. 
I kind of like to be adoring in either role. And so there's something that the power relationship can open up where that adoration has a different flavor than if it isn't present. Ooh, thank you so much for sharing about that because I've never heard of that as a particular kink. And that's why I wanted to start incorporating kink of the week because there are so many different things out there. And unless we have heard about it or know that it exists, like we just don't know what we don't know. Yeah. I am curious how feminism has impacted men. So I think that there's a careful discussion to be had there because different men have experienced it in different ways. So I think one narrative is that there's the traditional masculine narrow definition of what men should be. And a lot of men perceive feminism as creating a new narrow impossible definition of of what men should be. I have heard men say that feminism has told men that they should be something that they're not, that there's not room for the nature of men and manhood post-feminism. What I really try to emphasize and to teach my clients, especially leaning into the work of Bell Hooks and her two books, uh, The Will to Change, which is directly focused on men and masculinity, and also all about love, that feminism offers in the equality of genders the freedom of men from traditional masculinity. We are allowed under feminism to reintegrate all of the cut-off parts of ourselves, whether it's our desire or our vulnerability, our sadness, our tears, our love, our intensity. We get to be whole human beings again under the promise of feminism if we will join it and take a seat at the table. Mm, You brought up men's emotions when kind of talking about this. And I asked on Instagram, my listeners, you know, what kind of questions they had about men's emotions. And literally all of the women were like, I don't even understand them. And the men were like, women don't understand them. And I would love to get some insight on how as women can we understand men's emotions better And how do we support men better with their emotions? So I think there's a narrative out there that both men and women often have that men's emotions fundamentally function differently than women's. And frankly, I disagree. I think that if we look at men's experience through the lenses of um, systemic developmental trauma, If we look at men's emotions through a humanizing lens that men are good, men have love, men want to be accepted and cherished in our communities, then we can begin to understand the nature of men's emotions. We want to deliver our love. We try to deliver the love that we think our partners must want. Unfortunately, we often do that through inaccurate cultural scripts about what our partners do want. So we apply scripts of porn to our female partners. We apply romantic comedy stories to our partners and create, you know, stalking experiences when that wasn't our intention. We try to deliver the love that we think we would want without attuning to the love our partner actually wants. And then when we pour ourselves out trying to be a provider, protector, you know, sexy lover, you know, romantic partner, 
because we're operating out of inaccurate scripts, we feel defensive and hurt and pained to receive critical feedback because all we want is to receive the message, you are doing so great, you matter to me, you make my life better. And that's where so much of man's pain and frustration comes from. And then because we don't know how to metabolize that because of our traumas, it comes out sideways, angry, disappointed, frustrated, gaslighting, all sorts of other things. I feel like that is amazing insight for women when it comes back to the compassion, right? And that giving grace, things may not come out right. They don't always come out right for us either. But in this, again, is not always the case, but knowing that they have our best intentions and in mind, like they're, they're looking out for us genuinely, generally. Yeah. And so keeping that in the back of our mind, like they're not trying to hurt us. Yeah. It's so hard too, right? Because if we're speaking to a primarily female audience in this podcast, there's then kind of an unfair thing that can easily emerge in the conversation. Like women have to hold their pain under patriarchy, their fears literally physically of their male partners. And then they can end up hearing this kind of message or conversation of like, wait, and so also I'm supposed to experience unskillful, scary behavior for my partner and be compassionate to him. And I just want to acknowledge that's not fair and it's not the core message that I would ever want to send. And there is this unfairness in our relationships that if we aren't working to heal each other, we are probably perpetuating each other's traumas. Hopefully you have a partner who is ready to pick up some of the responsibility for healing your wounds too, so that it doesn't just feel like you're the only one doing that work in the relationship. And I think men are about 40 years behind women in this developmental process of accepting feminism. And that's painful. I love that you pointed that out, that it's not fair and it, and it is not all of our responsibility. And yeah, hopefully we, we do have a partner who wants to or is willing to carry that load as well. Yeah. Now, you had a question on your profile that I really wanted to ask you because I think this comes up a lot in conversations that I have with women. What does it mean about our sex life when a man masturbates or watches porn? So this is one of the ways that I think that patriarchal notions of sex and sexuality can stay in partnered relationship, even when a woman identifies herself as a feminist. We can kind of get into this idea that our partner's private sexual behavior means something about us that we're not attractive, that they don't like the sex that they want or have, or that their um, private sexual viewing, watching erotica that they read must mean something about whether they're actually a feminist or how they actually want to treat their partners. And it's so important that we free, I think, male sexuality from that notion. You know, if you're a woman who owns a vibrator who can provide pleasure to yourself, which I hope you are, then that's empowering for you. It allows you to regulate your emotions, help yourself go to sleep when you want to, to satisfy your desire on your own so that you can approach your sexual encounters from a place of abundance. And that need not be viewed any differently than when a man masturbates. Mm, Yes. I think that's so important because you're right. Like a lot of women do have vibrators or we masturbate and it does not mean anything about the sex that we are having with our partners. 
so vice versa. You know, the research says that women also have sexual fantasies that sometimes, you know, include elements of non-consent, that that's one of the most common female fantasies. But that doesn't mean that woman actually wants a non-consensual sexual relationship, right? There's a fantasy in there that's about how I could be freed past my self-consciousness, probably the patriarchy put on me into my erotic self. And that's also true of men's fantasies. Mm. This has been such an amazing conversation and so insightful. I think that the listeners are going to gain a lot of information from this. Before we wrap up, I would love for you to share with us, how do you define pleasure? So I'm going to take a very broad lens on pleasure that whether it's sexual or non-sexual, I like to think of pleasure as the lived experience that the beauty I'm witnessing through my senses is me. It carries me into being the beauty I feel in my body or being the beauty that I experience with my eyes or being the beauty that I hear with my ears. Pleasure is that moment where what I witness is in me and it's joy. I love that. Where can the listeners find you at? So I'm on social media at Dr. Eric Fitz, D-R-E-R-I-C-F-I-T-Z. And you can also find my website at DrEricFitz.com. And your book? And my book, The Better Man, A Guide to Consent, Stronger Relationships, and Hotter Sex is available wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble Bookshop. And if you're curious to take a look and learn more about it, you can find a page about it on my website. Beautiful. Yeah. I, like I said in the beginning, I read the book and found it very insightful. Definitely recommend for any of the male listeners, but also for the female listeners who want to understand this. Really, a lot of what we talked about here today is discussed in the book. So, highly recommend taking a look at that. And yeah, thank you, Eric, so much for chatting with me today. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is sponsored by Intimacy Coaching by Jordan Donnell. Have you ever desired more from your sex life or feel like you're having good sex, but curious about how to make it even better? Are you desiring a deeper intimate connection with yourself? Or maybe you are dealing with desire and arousal concerns or struggling with communicating your desires with your partner. If you're hearing this and thinking, hmm, that might be me and you're curious to learn a bit more, let's chat. I would love to talk with you more to see if working with me is a good fit for you. To learn more about intimacy coaching with Jordan Denell, go to coaching.jordandenell.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for joining today and continuing to bring awareness to women's health. If you love the show, please subscribe so you never miss another episode and leave a review for others to see. If you want to see me on the daily, you can check out my bio for links to all my pages. Be sure to share this episode with your girlfriends. Thanks again and see you next episode.